Hello everyone, welcome to season 4 of Scraps. Through your unwavering help, excitement and encouragement that you've provided, we have finished two seasons of interview-based podcasts and one amazing season of narrative scripted podcast documentary series on psychedelics' therapeutic potential that we called as Psychedelics. Psychedelics is available now on our Scraps channel that you're listening this podcast on and also as a standalone podcast. With these two productions, we are officially a channel on Apple Podcasts. So look for Scrap Studio and we look forward to bringing you more amazing stories and the documentary type episodes to you. Now coming back to Scraps, it feels great to be interacting with all of you again instead of referring to ourselves in third person as we did for the sake of the script during the Psychedelics podcast series. Scraps is your podcast where we explore the stories of sparks of brilliance in science and innovation. host Arun Sridhar and I've decided to hold fort while my partner Jojo Platt is taking a holidays. We at Scraps take pride in talking about science the unconventional way, especially because it is exactly how we think. And it also, we believe, makes the science stick better in your mind. The way we talk about it is exactly how I was trained and also the way many things are thought in my culture by telling stories. Today, we have a fantastic guest and we are going to have a very spicy conversation, no pun intended. A conversation where we will talk about spices, science, anecdotes and more importantly, it pertains to food. Krish Ashok is a techie and we will ask him about that in just a bit. But more importantly, as it pertains to this episode, he's a writer, an author of a fantastic book that I've had the opportunity to read recently. While most recipes in India are passed down through the generations from parent to their children, Krish Ashok's book Masala Lab is the first look at how Indian cooking can be approached through the prism of food science and how one can take an algorithmic view of cooking. His book Masala Lab does just that. We will drop the link to his book, his fantastic Instagram account and his routine weekly chats that he hosts with a couple of other fantastic folks on Clubhouse with his followers on all things pertaining to crazy information nuggets to food via his two clubs, Masala Trail and Salem Junction, which we will include in the show notes for you to access. While we can talk about many things related to food, and trust me, I did consider quite a few number of topics. It did not take too long for me to converge on the topic of chilies, food, and trips. No, it is not the psychedelic trips that we are talking about that we have been so accustomed to talking over the last few months, but about the TRP channels which are referred to by scientists as trip channels. 
This is exactly why the Nobel Prize was awarded this year in 2021, and we just did an episode a few weeks ago on this topic. One more thing that we have to be extremely grateful to our guest today is for his immediate acceptance of my request a few months ago to use his music in our podcast. Our guest today is also a trained violinist, a techie, as I said before, a bit of a food science nerd, and his music has formed the underscore of our sound design when the British veteran Keith Abraham described his struggles with PTSD. One of our guests' adaptation of a South Indian film classic, like this one on a strings. And my favorite, Linkin Park, Somewhere I Belong. And its slower version, like this one, seemed to call to me to include his creations in the PTSD episode of the Psychedelic series. It is so good to have him on the show to talk about chilies, food and trips. Welcome to the show, Ashok. Hey, absolute pleasure. It's good to see you. Should I call you Krish or Ashok? Because I think it's always been a, a, yeah. a, a, a point of kind of... Con- kind of difficulty yes, isn't Ashok. it especially so, with us uh, kind of folks from chennai in india yes it's it's ashok uh, and uh, so I, I still stuck to the convention of having the the surname first and then the the given name that comes afterwards sort of like chinese and you know korean and japanese people as well yes yeah tell us a bit about yourself krish i mean why do you call yourself a techie <laughs> and what drove you to actually kind of writing the book uh, masala lab so i've been a i've been in software for uh, uh for almost uh, two two and, a, two and a half decades almost 22 years now um and uh so it's it's my software job i work with one of the largest uh, technology companies in the world and it uh, it uh, it has taken me places in terms of uh, traveling globally eating all kinds of food more importantly i i lived in the us for about 7 or 8 years uh which is sort of the time when I was largely cooking by myself in my early 20s, uh, which is when I really took an interest into seriously thinking about Indian cooking and thinking about what goes into it. Um, and also sort of understanding why the documentation around the craft of Indian cooking is is rather poor in the sense that it's all it's all exoticized and it's all, you know, oh, it's spices. It's uh, And also a, a lot of the writing about Indian food has this uh, fake sense of authenticity. Oh, you must add exactly one quarter teaspoon of nutmeg powder or this is not an authentic recipe and so on. And when I was talking to the good cooks in my family, you know, my aunts and grand aunts and, you know, grandmothers and so on, uh, I realized that that's not how they cook. Recipes are not how they cook. Uh, and in a sense, I think it's it's my... Um, my IT background in thinking about models, meta models, um, and and essentially better engineering documentation, if you will, uh, for cooking, which has never been documented in, in that way, is what got me to write uh, a masala lab. Uh, uh, and, and again, it happened during the pandemic, so it found you know the right audience at the right time, if you will. So let's actually start from uh, in terms of of business for today, where we we decided that we'll talk about spice and and hotness in food. Yeah, tell us a bit more about the the history because you also have a very good knowledge of that of that area as well as it pertains to how over time 
food itself is not something that is ubiquitous to just one region. Uh, yep. In never, as we know, as uh, as of today. Uh, but tell us a bit more about that uh, in terms of history of yeah. of spice. So th- there's a fascinating uh, uh, a bit of uh, history that I experienced almost uh, almost a decade back in my own family, right? Uh, so as a kid, I never paid attention to it, um, and in fact, actually, it was one of those days where I did not like the food that was served on that day. Actually, it's uh, so many communities in India often do an annual uh, ritual of sorts uh, for their past ancestors, right? Um, and it happens once a year, um, and uh, you do a series of rituals. Uh, more importantly, the idea is that you cook food uh, that they liked. Okay, So that was the original intent of the ritual. Uh, but as with most rituals in most religions, what end- ends up happening is that it gets frozen in time, right? So, But it's fortunate because it ended up becoming a museum of pre-Columbian exchange uh, vegetarian food in South India, at least in this context, right? Um, and the food is is nothing like what Indian food tastes like today. It is just loaded with pepper uh, and ginger. So it's sort of, you know, the entire, all dishes just burn you in the throat, okay? So they yeah. don't burn you in the, in the mouth, they burn you in the throat. Um, and it's just pungent um, and, and peppery and, and so on. And uh, th- there are no tomatoes, uh, there's no chilies, uh, there's no tamarind. There's none of the things that came to India with trade um, and colonialism much later. So this is essentially, in some sense, cuisine as it was frozen in time, I don't know, maybe a thousand, thousand plus years ago. Um, and it uses only local ingredients and so on. Um, and it's quite interesting because, you know, you you eat that and you would not recognize it as Indian food at all, right? Um, yeah. And yet, and, and that is that is the story of Indian food, that it has continuously uh, changed. It has continuously uh, imbibed ingredients, if you will. And today we associate, you know, hotness and uh, chilies, particularly chili hotness with Indian food. Uh, less than, you know, it, it really, uh, less than 300 years have passed since chilies become, became mainstream. Um, in Indian cooking at all. They were introduced by the Portuguese uh, and they became popular in the in the Western coast, largely in Goa, which is where they were first uh, sort of cultivated. But apparently pretty soon, they replaced pepper uh, as the primary, uh, uh, you know, sort of heat agent in, 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 in cooking. Uh, because one, pepper grows only in Kerala uh, and is expensive. Uh, it's expensive to transport. It's it's expensive to process. But chilies can grow everywhere. And by the way, everyone, you have a plant, uh, you will grow more chilies than you can ever consume. Right? It's a phenomenally uh, productive plant, if you will. And and again, so it and it's also a very special. perennial plant as well, right? Yeah, because it, perennial, does, yeah. it just grows in cold weather, hot weather. It doesn't matter. It just grows. Yes, yes. Uh, and I actually planted a a Brazilian variety of chili in my terrace. Uh, I planted it in one pot. Um, and well, you know, it's it's now in, you know, 20 pots. So, and it is it is just remarkably productive as well. Um, and obviously also much hotter than pepper as well, right? So, so that, that's the, it's interesting because the, uh, the, the Portuguese bought not just chilies, they bought the potatoes, they bought tomatoes. Uh, they bought a lot of those other new world vegetables, if you will. Um, and I often, often say that one quintessential Indian dish that is the most Indian and yet the least Indian of Indian dishes is pav bhaji because uh, the pav is Portuguese, the potatoes are Peruvian, Bolivian, uh, the tomatoes, the capsicum, uh, the bell peppers and the chilies are, are Mexican <laughs> in origin. The, the beans and the carrot and the, the cauliflower are all European in origin. Apart from yeah. the pepper and the spices, there is nothing Indian in, in the pav bhaji. And yet, you know, people often swear by, oh, this is an authentic pav bhaji and so on. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. So I think what you're trying to uh, say is that from an Indian perspective, uh, things only moved 
kind of eastwards around the time that that yeah. people actually kind of brought the chilies over yeah. but then it, in india or with especially in, in indian indian subcontinent pepper was actually the most traded commodity before the oh, entire yes. western world dating all the way back to the romans and the greeks etc knew about chilies which was much later in the 1400s pepper yeah. was the most kind of important commodity that they actually came and and all the wars etc were all fought in a way uh right after they figured out that business was not the only way to kind of get oh, yeah, hold of exactly. all of that yeah. for the sake of pepper right yeah south india was trading with rome um and in not in any small quantities i mean we're talking hundreds of tons you know which which 2000 years ago is is insane right uh and it's amazing because you know you had you 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 find roman coins and roman fortifications in many of these ancient ports in south india um uh, and what is amazing is that the cargo was not just pepper it was also other spices um, including spices that we don't even use today um like nard and so on right uh, um and and what is also interesting is that the apparently the port of alexandria uh, the word spice itself comes from the same root as the word specific and special right um uh, and so originally it was used to for a list of items that attracted customs duty um, in the port of alexandria right so that's what a spice was so uh, anything special that came through you know they would they would uh, put a customs duty fascinatingly the one item that wasn't on that list was pepper because the volume was so high that you know it it was almost like the romans got a volume discount uh, on on pepper if you will um and so in that sense it's funny because your pepper is the original hot spice if you will um and yet it wasn't a spice as per the the definition of the 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 alexandria uh, port uh, around 2000 years ago yeah that, that that's that's really really interesting um and then one of the other things that i actually want to kind of bring about especially that you talk about extensively in your book but also something that people necessarily don't appreciate is the fact that taste or the feeling of kind of hotness that when when somebody tastes uh, excessive pepper or just normal spiciness of the food um or for example something else like wasabi uh, as an example which kind of hits you th- in the nose in the nose rather yeah. than hits you hit yeah uh, so so therefore it almost begs the question that taste is something that's a bit more than just what you feel in the tongue uh and i know yeah. you kind of have a very interesting thought on that as well yeah, so yeah 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 uh, so it's quite fascinating because the uh a flavor flavor perception is first and foremost uh one of the uh least understood um as from the point of view of research right so there's been way more research on sight and hearing uh, olfaction was always considered to be a lesser uh, sense if you will and largely you know if you ask most people uh, which you know which sense they could live without they would probably say smell right um, but we are increasingly realizing that it is far more important uh, that we give, uh, give well covid told us that smell is important right but you can exactly. still live without exactly. it yeah you can list well but food would taste terrible um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, you know, if you're someone who likes food so the interesting thing is that uh, it is estimated that 80% of what we consider to be flavor experience okay is actually happening in the nose right uh, your tongue can only sense five things you know sweet salt uh, sour bitter and umami and, and these are just very basic elemental things you know uh, saltiness is just the detection of sodium uh, sourness is just the detection of protons uh, the uh, you know and so on uh, bitterness is the detection of alkaloids uh, and so on and sourness uh, and i think uh, uh, umami is the detection of your know, glutamates again something relatively new Uh, that we've kind of discovered but what is and and obviously sweetness is glucose and so on um in fact the heat of chilies is fascinating because it's not even the tongue that's doing it it is in the sense it's not your taste buds that are doing it it's a sensation right um the, the, so the sensors the trp sort of sensors 
are the ones detecting uh, any high temperature food uh, or a very highly acidic food that you're eating. And just capsaicin happens to fit into that. Actually, other molecules like piperine and gingerol um, and what, what's there in mustard, which is sort of methyl isothiocyanate, end up sort of triggering the same uh, receptors, except that, you know, the one in mustard and wasabi is volatile. So it ends up wafting up and irritating you in the nose, which is why you sort of experience that in the nose. Uh, but, you know, the, the chili sensation is not something that you just feel in the mouth. I mean, you rub chilies on your hand, it's going to burn. Uh, so you have it all over. I mean, you have this and you have those sensors all the way in your alimentary canal. So you're going to feel it the next day, you know, when you, when you go to the washroom and so on. So it is it is interesting that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a molecule that seems to have uh, tricked you into thinking that you're actually eating something high temperature um, and then your brain takes uh, sort of evasive action it you know it sends a lot more blood to your face you get flushed and it, you you start to sweat because it's thinking you have to cool down um, and then there's a rush of uh, you know endorphins into your brain to to sort of uplift your mood and which is why people get addicted to sort of spicy food and it becomes a rush you know you uh, at the extreme level you have people eating these uh, you know carolina reapers and boot jolokias in these contests and so on <laughs> uh, but the reality is that i think people largely enjoy uh, the sort of you know the high uh, that it gives you and it's also interesting the uh, north indian food is is spicy but not hot uh, so south indian food is is hot and not as spicy, actually. Yeah. So, so uh, that's the distinction, right? So, hot essentially refers to the amount of chilies and amount of sort of heat-producing uh, molecules that you have in your food. Spicy is generally the overall number of volatile, aromatic uh, sort of molecules that you have from the likes of cumin and nutmeg and, and pepper and, and those kinds of things as well. Yeah, and I think which is which is you you made a fantastic point about how these molecules that are in in kind of spicy things that we eat uh, end up triggering kind of things that are that are in the uh, receptors or the, 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 in the taste receptors of the mouth. Uh, these are these ion channels which basically yeah. allow passage of ions through from one side to the other side. And therefore, that's what triggers, that's what enables a conversion of that that kind of olfactory or, or or kind of the gustatory kind of things into electrical signals that ultimately get sensed by the brain, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, what's fascinating, you know, so when you say gustatory, right, um, the, the the idea of food experiences or flavor experiences are so central in the way our brain processes them that when we use terms like disgusting, uh, it comes from the same origin as the word gustatory, right? So it's, it's quite fascinating that way. That expressions like bitter aftertaste uh, expressions like disgusting. All of these actually are sort of very deeply food related, and, and it's it's quite fascinating how close um, uh, you know this experience of food is to our emotions and so on. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, and and it's also very very interesting that the the knowledge about the actual compound that these these chilies actually have, which is capsaicin. Yeah, it's more than a century old. I mean, yeah. in fact, it's probably close to 140 years old. I mean, it was first realized. Uh, capsaicin was actually kind of isolated in the late 1800s in around 1890 or so and then i also found during the course of kind of research for the the work that i was doing for a previous kind of narrative podcast series called psychedelics that the the person who actually synthesized the uh, the synthetic version of capsaicin was ernst Pat, the austrian chemist who was also the guy who synthesized mescaline, oh. uh, which ultimately became brave the, new world. Yeah, brave new world exactly. Yes. So it, it's a very uh, amazing thing that over the course of history, I think trade and and food 
or so interrelated. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. And as we found ourselves in, in the new world order, almost every 50 year cycles or every 100 year cycles or so. Yeah. And then now, uh, in re- with respect to the new world order, I think it's also interesting that that things that people would normally say associated with changing the world is is also has a connection to something that that is food related and especially to spice and capsaicin. Oh, absolutely. So, in fact, uh, I think Lizzie Collingham, um, who writes fantastically about uh, food, history of food, particularly from a British colonial uh, standpoint, points out. That there are literally, I think, five things. Um, let me see if I can remember them. Uh, sugar, tobacco, uh, tea, coffee, and I think pepper, I guess, right? Uh, if you take these five commodities, uh, and, and maybe you can add silk to that as well, right? Uh, just these five commodities uh, were a central part of the entire colonial enterprise for, th- for three to four hundred years, okay? Right? Sugar essentially drove slavery and indentured labor. Uh, and and tea essentially drove the, the the complete destruction of China with opium and all the rest of that sort of stuff. And pepper, of course, we yeah. know, you know, for the last you know thousand years or so, um, it's it's amazing. And and coffee again, you know, because it grows in such a few places, uh, there was great interest in making sure that those places were under the control of colonial powers. And likewise, you know, tobacco, obviously, right? You know, and the destruction yeah. that you know yeah. it brought. It's quite fascinating how just these five things uh, define the his- yeah. colonial history for you know for you know three or four hundred years almost. Yeah, yeah, and 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 for the listeners, uh, uh, Ashok actually hosts a fantastic kind of clubhouse session uh, almost every every week or yeah, every, every other week, week yes. if I'm correct, yeah. on uh, as it pertains to food, uh, and it's called Masala Trail, and he does it with another fantastic person uh, and cook, uh, Nandita Ayer, who has also written a book called Saffron Trail. Um, and one of the key things that you actually mentioned when you recently did a session on sugar uh, recently was how sugar increases the the uh the way in which we perceive some of the other flavors in food and especially i think one of the things that you mentioned uh was how uh the addition of a small amount of sugar to food uh will basically enhance the spiciness or the hotness in the food as oh, well yeah, so yeah, yeah. can you tell us a bit more about that uh, so Ashok? yeah so essentially so you know a lot of our uh a taste and flavor detection apparatus is a product of uh, evolution uh, that far predates the the modern post agricultural settled you know eating grains and you know modern industrial world you know um, or the agricultural world for that matter so we are still products of a time when calories were not easily available uh, that you largely either hunted animals when you could and you ate when you could you found fruits when you could uh, and so essentially we have a taste we have this brain and flavor apparatus that says if you find sugar, you know, eat it because you don't, you know, that's it's immediate calories. Uh, and so there's an entire apparatus that uh, is is dedicated to making sure that you are absolutely addicted to and you love the experience of anything sweet, right? Uh, and not only that, and not just the obviously sweet ones, right? So even if there is a tiny amount of sugar where something is not even perceptibly sweet, so and chefs will often add a tiny pinch of some sweet ingredient or sugary ingredient uh, to your food, uh, as a result of this, right? So it, in your, it, there is still enough sugar for the signal to go back to your brain uh, and to say, there seems to be, this seems to be high calorie food. So let's make it more enjoyable. Let's amplify everything else. And let's make this, you know, sort of, you know, let's make this guy addicted to. So that's the difference. You make a dal or you make a dish uh, or sambar or anything else, right? Uh, the same dish made with a teaspoon of sugar, which you won't even perceive as sweet, but enough for your brain to say, oh, this is amazing, right? It really amplifies all the other flavors and the, your experience of the food in general. Yeah, and, and, I, think, and I think that's, that's actually f- uh, kind of a, a great way because we kind of discovered it ourselves because recently we started making our own bread 
at home. And and I think my wife actually adds a p- very small pinch of sugar without nothing else that's added uh, to the whole thing. Yep. It, you can actually sense the taste of 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 the flour yep, uh, yep. Uh, and much more. You can appreciate it because sometimes when she doesn't taste it, I just kind of yep. tell her that the taste is not the same as what she did the last time. Exactly. So I think then yep. she told me once that she didn't add the little pinch of sugar yeah. um, uh, to, uh, when she was actually kind of baking. Um, yeah, it also, in baking, it does a sec- additional thing of actually making, getting the yeast started as well, right? So, you know, yeah. so yeast has to break down starch, which is harder. I mean, although it's glucose, yeah. it still has to do a lot more work. It has to generate amylase, and then you know, amylase has to break down the starches and so on. Uh, but if you give it uh, sucrose, that's just simple. You know, you break it down to glucose and fructose pretty easily. Um, and so the yeast re- reproduces faster. And so therefore your fermentation rate is also higher if you add a little bit of uh, sugar into your dough as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We are just going to take a short break and give a thank you to few of our loyal listeners that we have who have made it a point recently to reach out to us and let us know about their feedback. Lindsay, who was also one of our guests on the bonus episode of Psychedelics from San Francisco. Tom Flores, also from San Francisco, Pooja Rao from Netherlands, Thomas Minot from France, and Robert from Spain. Thank you for all the kind comments and the ratings that you have left us online. We are also super thankful to Forbes and Wise Magazine and Dale's Report columnist and author Amanda Seabird to have given us a fabulous feedback on our most recent psychedelic series by calling it one of the best that she has heard on the subject. And coming from Amanda, we are eternally grateful to her. So if you've not had a chance to catch up on any of her previous work, please do so. Don't be shy and send us your feedback and we will ensure that we thank you publicly for lending us your ear and more importantly, your feedback. Now let's get back to our guest. So and one of the other things that that I think uh, would be kind of interesting to bring out is also the fact that when the entire capsaicin was discovered in the late 1890s, then it was synthesized in around 1930s or so by the same guy who kind yeah. of synthesized mescaline. And it took yeah. people have been uh, kind of working on ways in which sensory perception or the involvement of nerves in sensory perception yeah. of how we feel, how we taste, how we see, etc. has kind of gone on over multiple years since then. And I think all the way from the the cardiovascular system uh when yes. someone breathes uh, and when when somebody actually kind of uh, have, feels that the heart uh, they basically have a pain sensation in the chest uh, as a result of a heart attack or anything else or in case of inflammation uh, as some of the folks might actually feel with with the pericarditis etc that they might feel with the inflammation of the outer sac of the of the heart um are all mediated by the nerve fibers which incidentally yep. have these strip channels, uh, the transient receptor yep. potential channels, uh, ion channels that reside on all of these uh, neurons. And the, the the most important thing, and as you, it kind of struck me as you were mentioning about the hotness in the food, is that when the trip channels were actually originally kind of discovered, cloned and, and functionally looked at, the way that they actually saw that these strip channels were actually functioning um, was that I mean, normally you do a technique called a spatch clamping, which is basically recording ion channel activity. And that's how most of the things about taste in olfactory cells and gustatory cells, et cetera, are all done in basic science. Um, 
Yeah. And this is a way in which you basically have like a glass micropipette that would basically blob on to a single cell and you would record ionic currents. And these ionic currents that you record from the trip channels, from cells expressing only trip channels because you can clone them, is that at room temperature, it's pretty small current. But then when you actually yeah. hit a particular temperature, so if you have a water bath, and it's only when yeah. you hit the water bath uh, to around yeah. 40 degrees, the amount of current or the amount of conduction in those actually goes up. So, which is yeah. interesting that this is all done in the absence of kind of capsaicin and other things to activate it. You're just measuring as a function yeah. of temperature, but essentially what capsaicin it. does sensor, is yeah. it actually yes. activates that heat temp heat sensors in your tongue and that basically activates the channel, right? So uh, it's a very interesting way as to how nature works. And then from the the last thing that I actually wanted to kind of talk to you, uh, Ashok, was really about how we determine kind of the the uh, the spiciness uh, of of how something is actually hot. Uh, especially you kind of mentioned the Carolina Reaper versus the normal kind of bell peppers yes. or capsicum that people actually use for cooking, which I think has probably yeah. the least spicy because you can even yeah. kids can actually eat that, right? You can you can cut capsicum and yeah. even yeah. kids can eat it. Versus other things like Carolina yeah. Reaper, et cetera, are things that are extremely spicy. And there's a gradation yes. and, yeah. and and it's basically kind of Scoville units or or um yeah. and you you have a, a great story about that to share as well, which I think would be interesting yeah. Yeah. for our listeners to hear. So Right. So, so in fact, when you spoke about the 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 discovery of you know the synthetic uh, version of capsaicin that you could produce in a lab and so on, is around also at the time when uh, 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 sort of pharma pharmacological companies were fig uh, figuring out the use of capsaicin uh, in pain relief. Right. Uh, so there's sort of this this uh, category of uh, Topical pain relief that uh, that's called a counter irritant. Okay, so and and India, by the way, you know, if you look at India, even going back two thousand years, people have been chewing uh, things like ginger um, and essentially things that otherwise irritate your throat in ways that it distracts from the actual problem. Really, that's really what a counter irritant is, right? Um, and capsaicin, uh, in a sense, does that, right? So because by by blocking these channels, it reduces your pain perception of the actual problem. Okay. Uh, and and so in a sense, so people obviously figured out pretty early uh, that you could use capsaicin in pain relief creams, and almost all pain relief creams tend to use a combination of uh, things like menthol, things like camphor, things like capsaicin, all of which again sort of you know, fit into these 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 channels, right? These sensors and are able to trigger them. You know, uh, menthol does it for the cold sensing channels, and then you know capsaicin does it for the hot sensing channels, right? So when you that's why when you eat mint, you feel. Uh, cold, um, as opposed to when you eat chilies, you feel hot and so on, right? So yeah. the uh, yeah. almost every pain relief cream uh, essentially uses that. And uh, one gentleman who used to be an academic uh, 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 sort of started working for Park Davis and Company in, in the the turn of the around the, the 1930s or so, uh, which incidentally was also the company that made cocaine. That also made yes. mescaline and a whole host of other yes. things back in the eighteen hundreds. Absolutely, 1800s. absolutely, yes. Yeah, it's, it's you know one small side aside, right? I've been fascinated uh, over the, ever since I read this book called "The Hidden Life of Trees" um, about about how stunningly alien the plant world is from the animal world. Okay, yeah, uh, and so many of these things that are different, like you know, even down to cooking, right? Salt dehydrates plant cells. 
hydrates muscle tissue uh, um, and uh, uh, you know plant cells have you know cellulose hemicellulose they have rigid structures muscles are flexible right uh, yeah uh, plant cells you know plants have chloroplasts so they're green in color and again they're green because that's the one frequency of light they don't use right so they use the other ones and they reject green that's yeah. why you know the leaves are green and so on right um, and then animals on the other hand sort of muscle tissue has myoglobin which which sort of carries oxygen so it's sort of red in color uh, red meat you know people people often think red meat is red because of blood no it's red because of myoglobin and so on so and the other fascinating thing is that things like you know a cannabis plant has tetrahydrocannabinol yeah. right uh, <laughs> it acts as a sunscreen for the plant but well it is an eye opener for animals that eat it so it's again you know it's it's quite amazing how uh, plants and animals you know and again so this is uh, so essentially this gentleman uh, uh, figures out that you know they they used to make uh, they used to extract the capsaicin from chilies right so this was obviously at the time when uh, synthetic production wasn't really uh, a, a practical uh, issue uh, uh, you know sort of pra- uh, endeavor then uh, and then what they would do uh, is that they would keep getting these batches of chilies and he recognized that he had a problem right that there was no guarantee which batch of chili was hot and which is not. And and by the way, if you have a chili plant in your house, you would experience the same thing. There is no way of predicting which chili is just going to be a complete blank, uh, non-hot one and which one is going to be insanely hot. Okay. Uh, and, so, and so therefore, again, you know, seasoned gardeners would know that you have to reduce the amount of water that you give the, the chili plant uh, so that, you know, it doesn't... Uh, uh, so that it doesn't, you know, it, it it gets more spicy and so on. But anyway, so the interesting thing is that he said, well, we need a way to standardize the amount of heat in a chili. Uh, and that's when he derived, sort of devised this test where the capsaicin extracted from a chili would be uh, diluted with sugar water and a tray, uh, a panel of trained testers uh, would, would drink it um, and tell you whether they can still sense any heat. Okay. Uh, and then essentially the, the number of buckets and the number of uh, liters, the number of amount of sugary water you needed to completely kill the sensation of capsaicin from one chili was defined as the Scoville heat unit of the chili, right? So for example, your, your bell peppers are close to zero, right? They don't have much capsaicin at all. And your ghost chilies and so on can get anywhere close to a million Scoville units. Um, you know, nowadays there are more synthetically produced, you know, genetically sort of modified variants that go up to two, three million. They're not really edible. I mean, they're just probably used for making pepper sprays and so on. Uh, and so that's the that's so the guy who did this was Wilbur Scoville, uh, who invented this test originally to actually uh, produce pain relief creams, not really nothing to do with food at all. And yet everybody today sort of talks about the heat of chilies in, in, in terms of the Scoville heat unit. Then are there any obvious things that we're actually kind of overlooking, uh, Ashok, as it pertains to kind of our perception of how spiciness works in yeah. food to actually kind of things that, yeah. that uh, we normally kind of don't talk about or don't yeah. perceive enough? So a couple of broader things that I, in my experience, have come across in the kitchen is that um, so aromatic flavors, particularly in spices like pepper, you know, nutmeg, the more expensive spices, your cardamom, and so on, right? Um, they 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 go down the longer you cook something, uh, right? So. Uh, and also they're, they're mostly fat soluble, meaning that uh, so you want to get all of those flavors into the fat. Uh, any kind of you know adding them spice powders into any gravy means that you're going to lose most of it to the air, 
right? Yeah. Um, as you're cooking. So, you know, when somebody says, oh, the kitchen smells amazing, it's essentially all the fl- expensive flavor molecules that you're losing from your dish is really what it is, right? Uh, and, and so, so, but a capsaicin, on the other hand, uh, you don't really lose it. It's, uh, it's not very volatile. Uh, and uh, so, no, cooking for some, something for long is not going to cut down the, the heat levels. Uh, it will cut down spice levels, but it will not cut down heat levels. And I'm being very specific here. So, heat is the sensation of capsaicin and the burning sensation of pepper with piperine and ginger oil and so on. And spiciness is all of those other volatile things that you sense with your nose, right? Uh, and capsaicin is sensed in, in the mouth all over, right? And, and down your throat and in your stomach and, you know, down there as well the next day. So um, so this is one thing. Uh, the second interesting thing is that uh, what I've often found is that uh, there are cuisines where it's not just the heat of the chili that's the primary ingredient, but the actual flavor, right? Uh, once you kind of, uh, uh, like habaneros, for example, or scotch bonnet peppers, which are really, really hot, okay, also have tremendously rich flavors. A scotch bonnet has a fantastic fruity flavor uh, that, you know, you can't make Jamaican cooking without the scotch bonnet pepper. I mean, it is just quintessential yeah. to Caribbean uh, cooking and so on. And habanero also has a lovely, rich, fruity flavor, despite the sort of searing heat. Um and what is interesting, so you, the cuisine of Mexico is fascinating in that they have hundreds of varieties of chilies, uh, most of which are not used for the heat, but they're used for their actual flavors. And there are, so you get the green variety, the fresh green variety, the fresh red variety, uh, which means it's more fruitier and so on. Um, and you get the dried red variety, which has its own flavors. And then you get the dried red smoked variety, like your chipotle chilies uh, and so on. So, so it is. Chilies are not just about heat. Um, so there are cuisines where the flavor itself, actually, even Thai cuisine, the the bird's eye chili has a lot of flavor uh, apart from just the heat. Um, and so you can't just replace it with another variant of chilies. In my experience, I found that Indian chilies are either all heat or their color, meaning that they impart a bright red color, uh, which is your Kashmiri yeah. uh, and the Bedigi chilies from South India. Um, uh, but otherwise, you know, you don't get as much flavor. It's either just searing heat or it's it's color, right? And in fact, mostly North India, they use the chilies that impart color, not so much the heat uh, and so on. But what's interesting is that 80% of all of the, the color imparting chilies are not used in cooking in India. They're used to make lipsticks. Um, and again, it's it's again a variety of chili. It's uh, uh, not high on capsaicin, so obviously, I think you know it's not going to burn your lips when you <laughs> uh, make lipstick with it as well. Yeah, which is another. It brings about another interesting point, especially in all of all the Indian households and possibly all South Asian households, where you have a lot of dried red chilies uh, yes. of of different lengths uh, and and also different levels of stoutness, right? Uh, where yep. you actually have. Uh, where is that so different from from a green chili that you might actually get in the market? Yeah, uh, yeah. So tell us about. So is does it also have the same property? Because some of those dried red chilies are are really spicy compared yes. to the green counterparts, right? Uh, it, it, but uh, that's different from what you were mentioning earlier about the yeah, actually, the so, color and the flavor. Yeah. So in general, actually the. Um, the, the 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 green so the, the the dried version of whatever is the uh, the equivalent green one um is not really uh, too different in spice i think you you perceive it because of the the dilution as a result of there being more water okay. that's really that's all there about it sheer in terms of amount of capsaicin they have the same amount of capsaicin okay uh, but because the but you because you're getting other flavors you're getting the vitamin c you're getting all the other things uh, and you're getting all the water as well so you kind of uh, perceive a slightly diluted effect uh, but uh, 
uh, they largely have the same sort of capsaicin values as well. And I think uh, so. In, at least in South India, there's there's a there's a stout uh, short one uh, that again is largely used to to make uh, sambar powder and curry powder. So it has a slightly more smoky flavor while being pretty hot. Uh, so your other longer red chili variety is this grown in Andhra that's very very hot. Uh, it's just, but that's just pure heat, no flavor, right? Uh, and then you have the color ones that are used to uh, largely impart color, red coloring uh, to sort of food along with turmeric. Almost, you know, that chili powder and the uh, and turmeric, you know, literally gives you that quintessential that that red color of Indian in food everywhere, right? Uh, and yeah, and I think the other uh, interesting aspect of uh, chilies also is that the uh, uh, the green ones, uh, they have, despite the fact that they have all this heat, uh, their shelf life is short because the, the stalk, which has no capsaicin, uh, there's a fungus that is uniquely adapted to attack the stalk of the chili. Okay. So, and at least in South India, the chilies will go bad in no time. And so, which is why you should remove the stalk uh, when you want to refrigerate the, the chili. And then it will last forever because the capsaicin is a very strong antimicrobial uh, properties uh, that you know uh, none of these things want to mess with so so in general yeah so i think uh, uh, you do it that it almost well. takes you back to to when my it, it takes me back to my when my grandmother would actually kind of remove the stalks yeah. from the chilies and you'd be like why can't you just put it in and then but she would not give us the reason but then she would actually be very diligently just remove yeah. the stalks from them before she would put the, put it inside the fridge see that's um, the other fascinating thing about cooking right is that uh, that there's such a tremendous ton of practical tacit knowledge passed down through the ages, you know, mother to daughter and so on. Um, and so little of it actually documented uh, properly. And again, you know, so, uh, you know, as Mike, uh, I think uh, Harold McGee says, in the in the kitchen, it's the knowledge of cooking that matters, not food science. Okay, Food science it just helps you understand it a little bit better. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, your grandmother didn't have to know that it's about this fungus that's specific, but she knows that you know it's the waste of money um if you if you don't remove the stock because it will go bad in just a couple of days right so yeah 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 that, no that's fantastic so i think the, this has been great to actually kind of just talk through all things or at least most things as it pertains to kind of chilies and i think as somebody who has actually worked in pharmaceutical companies which have developed uh trip channel modulators uh for various things most of them are blockers of these for for pain, uh, yeah. and then there is. I also used to work on on a discovery program, which was actually uh, developed for blocking of a different type of a trip channel called Trip V4, which was for um, blocking the feeling of fullness in your in the thorax and the lungs, so uh, that people actually don't feel uh, these the, or it, the symptoms don't worsen because those are the ones that actually kind of tells the brain to increase yes. the sympathetic drive to actually drive which is more detrimental in yeah. conditions like end stage heart failure so it was so there are things that have already been tried in the clinic uh, in clinical trials and and many other companies right now especially pain is a massive area where trip a1 which is a different type of a trip channel but that's more present in the in the spinal cord neurons etc are things that are being blocked, et cetera, at this point of time to, wow. to see if people can actually work. So I think, yeah, it's trip channels are booming. I think everybody talks about it purely from the, from a perspective of science and yeah. how it pertains to this particular sensation or that particular sensation, why it's important in this disease. And I think what we wanted to do was to kind of take a very diff different view of that. And, yeah. and thank you so much, Ashok, for actually doing it uh, with us and really, Pleasure. really appreciate yeah. it. And so for, for your I, Western I, I, audience, I will just say that I think, you know, if there is, 
if they want the quintessential experience of chilies right and and not in just the when you're eating mexican food or thai food where it's just just hot food and so on uh you the quintessential minimalist chili experience short of just biting into chilies uh is to is to is to eat go to indian street and eat something called pani puri okay uh because the <laughs> yeah. the it's it's just a it's just a dough fried dough sort of ball which is which has a hollow interior um and it's filled with a liquid that is dipped into and that's just chilies mint uh rock salt which again has you know sodium sulfide and so it has that smell of the sort of eggy smell if you will um and and cumin right um, and it's very minimalist that yeah. way and the chilies are very pronounced uh and it is and tamarind as well right so what happens is that it's 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 a combination of the acid hit of the tamarind the heat of the chilies a little bit of the sweetness from the the jaggery or the sugar that they add there the menthol giving you the cooling sensation and it is just a very raw experience that i think is a good way to truly appreciate uh, what the chili does short of just biting into it daily and it's really pleasurable and you get the crunch of the the puri as well so it's a complete mouthfeel experience uh, as well yeah. and if you're wondering and it seems so simple at for 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 someone who's not used to it it'll seem like a very odd thing that this there's a guy dipping something very unhygienically you know into into this big pot and then handing it to you and you're eating it it is just remarkable it's an experience that uh, you do have to go through at least once yeah and it, and i think most at the, at least the last time that i was in the states in and uh, pre covid and uh, at least here in the uk most of the restaurants have actually started most of the authentic indian restaurants i must say because there are so many in the uk that call themselves indian most of the authentic indian restaurants serve pani puri of of some variation or sort so yeah. i think i think i think people will definitely kind of get get that feel and and thanks so much yes. for highlighting that as well as show sure. no this has been pleasurable thank you so much and and i think your book masala lab is is fantastic i think it's great just to read it as as kind of simple things a logical stepwise thinking because just like you i started cooking when i went to grad school uh and prior to that my mother kind of started training me uh, at home but then as 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 just a home cook or where it just cooking for more for eating and over time kind of developing your own kind of flavors which is very distinct from how uh even within our house as to how different both myself and my wife actually have our approach to cook etc this is your book is kind of a great way to actually kind of explain uh some of the steps because as you said most of the things in indian cooking has all kind of passed on uh yeah. and not necessarily written down so yeah, this way it kind of helps yeah, you to not think really about recipes. it yeah the heuristics correct, not correct. Recipes. yeah yeah <laughs> correct correct now this is this is fantastic thanks so much for doing Super. it pleasure uh, really appreciate it Hope you really enjoyed listening to this conversation. If you did enjoy this conversation, please remember to rate us on Apple Podcast or share it widely on your social media, tagging us. That's the only way that we can reach new listeners. Remember, Scraps is a volunteer-run organization to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists, innovation and innovators as a service to the world. Any help with respect to donation to aid our production costs will be greatly appreciated and you can find the link on our website scrapspodcast.com forward slash donate thank you so much again 